Welcome, Tales of Glory listeners. This is the big episode 68. This is another special edition of Tales of Glory. We're getting out there. I released a podcast yesterday. It was another special edition on Good Friday, what happened when Jesus went to the cross. Now I want to cover something more interesting, about more about the supernatural. What happened when Jesus descended down to Shoal and what went on down there? There's a lot of things to unpack here. This can be more impromptu. I can't cover everything, but I'm going to give you guys the gist of what it looks like. What happened while Jesus was down in Shoal? Who were the prisoners he preached to? You know, what's going on there? And we know he got the keys from death down there. So let's just take a a general overview look, but it's enough to fill in some blanks for some of you people of what went on and what Jesus did before he resurrected from the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. So now we're moving into the Saturday after Good Friday. Where did Jesus go? We're launching right from the moment where Jesus um, gave up his spirit and was going to go in paradise and meet his other, uh, his new friend, the thief down there, right? The thief was going to meet him in paradise. So now we're in paradise. I want to launch what that looks like and where we're at here. So for that, we're going to actually need a biblical reference. We're going to go to Luke 16. Um, verses 19 through 31, we're looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Although it's a parable describing what happens, I know there's been some academic people who kind of just poo-pooed it and said, well, that's not what Shoal looks like. It's just a parable. I think there's enough details in here from Jesus that he filled in some blanks of what Shoal actually looks like. I think this is a pretty good roadmap for it. So let's take a look at it. Verse 19 Rich man Lazarus, Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abram far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abram, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for in my anguish in this flame. But Abram said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides, all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from here to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that me warn them, lest they come to this place in torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear from Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Whoa, so kind of anything like even if Jesus rose from the dead wouldn't convince them. Powerful stuff here. So let's rewind. So when uh, Lazarus, the homeless guy, the, the guy was filled with sores, when he died, angels carried him off to Abraham's bosom. We got that picture, right? That's in Shoal. So even the righteous, before Jesus was resurrected, everybody went to Shoal. There's two chambers to Shoal at this time. One is paradise. 
There's a chasm that separates. Remember, so nobody can cross the chasm from there either to either side or visit family members. Hey, I'm over in Abram's bosom. I'm going to go visit my first friend in hell. Nope, can't do that. Why would you want to? But oh well. And likewise, so the people who are sitting in hell couldn't go across to Abraham's bosom. Likewise, I think what's unique is we see even in the spirit realm, we still have our senses. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish. So touch is there, sensory is there, all sorts of stuff's going on in, in, in hell. We still have those. So it's kind of interesting, those are spiritual um, attributes we take with us when we, we, we pass in the spirit realm. And there's this thing called the chasm. We've heard this before, the abyss, right? And we know that there's there's spiritual beings down there that are in chains, so we're going to get to that too. That's part of the story of what Jesus went and did. So let's set this aside here, and I want to go look at something else. Actually, I want to pull up my um, some notes I had from my book, um, Cosmology and Demonology in Genesis 1-11, through because we're going to start looking at Shoal and who these spiritual beings are who are in the abyss. So what we're going to do here is look at the New Testament Apostles Theology. I have it documented here in my book. Um, what did the apostles believe at that time about angelology and demonology? Because it comes into play here when we're talking about when Jesus went down into Shoal, who did he talk to? Who were, who were the prisoners? Who were the people he set free? Obviously, the, the people, the righteous, are in Abraham's bosom. That's paradise. They weren't made righteous yet until Jesus completed his work on the cross and completed his atonement and paid for their sins in full. So paradise was a holding area, right? Like you go wait for an airplane. Basically, that's what it was. To go to your, your trip to heaven, you're, you're in this, this um, holding area called paradise, and that's what the righteous were there. Abraham was there, like we see in the, the parable. Probably Jacob, Isaac, all those guys are there, right? The people you heard of Jeremiah, Joshua, all those guys. So let's look at the um, apostles like Peter, Paul, those guys all believed about angelology and stuff back during that time. What was their theology on this? So what's interesting here is if we're going back to Second Temple Hebrews, their angelology and demonology doesn't match ours. We have deviated significantly from what they believed. I think a lot of it is due with the um, Catholic Church mythology and stuff they built up with choirs of angels and things. And what we have to do is, it's kind of like Jurassic Park. Remember they made the raptors? They had to go get the... Uh, um, <laughs> the tree frog DNA to make the wrappers to glue things together. I think that's what angel. I think that's what the Catholic Church did with their angelology, um, and it's just it's it's been something that's been proliferated from the medieval times or earlier. But if we jump back to the actual Second Temple Hebrew angelology demonology, things actually make more sense. So what they had was a book called First Enoch. And it was a common book in the church, but it wasn't canonical for the Septuagint. Very important. Well, gosh, Mike, that's that's demonic introducing books that don't belong here. No, it's not. We read books that are not canonical today. We read books by John MacArthur. We read books, you know, like Dr. Jeremiah and stuff like that, that that help us spiritually understand things, right? So look at it this way. This was a a text that was widely read and widely available. Even Paul read it, and Paul quoted from it was First Enoch. I had trouble with this area too. And I think the whole deal is, no, it's not canonical, but if there's an old ancient book, and these are starting to surface through the um, Dead Sea Scrolls and other places too, or seen these scrolls, it was very common for this book, First and Second Enoch, that if it was widely available and these guys read them and quoted them, it's okay for us to read through them. Some of them don't make sense. Some of them are weird. 
but we can glean some information as to what our forefathers in the church, the capital A apostles, believed. And, you know, what did Jesus do? And what was he seeing? Because this all ties together, which is really weird. So, what did the apostles think of First Enoch? There is scriptural evidence in the New Testament that these men were familiar with the contents of the Second Temple book. It was available during the Second Temple time. References to the rebellion of the Watchers in the New Testament came predominantly from First and Second Peter in the book of Jude. Again, I'm reading from my own book, Cosmology and Demonology, Genesis 1-11. through So, where things pop up that are weird, let's look at um, in Second Peter Chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, we come across these controversial verses. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness and with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Let's pause here. Do you notice the steps involved? For if God did not spare the angels. Genesis 6. For if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought upon the flood. Genesis 7. And in verse 6, he cites Sodom and Gomorrah. Boom, boom, boom. They're happening in order. So I want to go back up to verse 4. For if you did not spare the angels when they sinned, that's the watchers. That's Genesis 6. Um, the ones who who desired the, the angels who desired the uh, daughters of men. That's what we're talking about here. Those angels were cast into prison. Satan and his demons and um, ungodly angels are not in prison right now. They're roaming. These are the principalities called out in Ephesians 6.12. We know they're free. Those guys are not in prison. And who's in prison? Who is this that um, they were cast into to hell for the angels were not spared when they sinned? Which angels sinned? It was the watchers. So very important here. There's something going on here we need to pay attention to. So again, look at the structure of Peter's message in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-6. through 6. He presents his events in chronological order. First, God chained divine spiritual spirits and cast them into hell. Then God preserved Noah through the flood, and then God brought judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah. The latter two events we are familiar with from the book of Genesis. However, when did God chain angels and throw them into hell? Again, Satan and his wicked kingdom are not being judged in Revelation. Until Revelation 20. So what... Here, what do we have here? So what... um, So what cosmic event is Peter referring to? What's he referring to? What happened? The author of Jude makes a similar reference to angels in prison in Jude verses 5 through 7. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their proper position of authority, but left their dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So what's brought up in those themes? Sexual immorality. What were the angels sin? Sexual immorality. They were not to have 
engage in um, sexual actions with the daughter of, of men. So verses 6 and 7 of Jude remind the readers of spiritual beings who do not stay in their position of authority and speak of sexual morality in context of problem where God has to bring justice and order. These spirits are kept in eternal chains and darkness until the great day of the Lord. Again, the great day of the Lord is a future event in the book of Revelation. In our Bible, we do not correlate with any event. Spiritual beings are put in chains and prison of eternal darkness. We don't correlate. And you like, nothing's cited. Where is it? It's not there. What are Peter and Jude referring to? The second temple would have made the connection to first Enoch, right? So back in that time, you're, you're, you're attending the first temple. You're, you're very versed in scriptures. You're hearing them every, every time you go to the synagogue. And when they start talking about the watchers, the angels that sinned, they're going back in the Septuagint, right? They don't have a New Testament. They have the Septuagint. They're going back to, oh, this is referencing Genesis 6, the watchers, the angels that sinned. That's what they're after. So in 1 Enoch chapter 10, um, verses 11 through 13, the account of the archangel Michael binding the leader of the Watcher Rebellion, Shemi Hazah, and his spiritual entourage are cast into the abyss. This is what the Second Temple people are going to. So 1 Enoch chapter 10, verse 11, And to Michael he said, Go, Michael, and bind Shemizah and the others with him, who have mated with the daughters of men, so that they were defiled by them by their uncleanness. And when their sons perish and they see the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them for seventy generations in the valley of the earth until a day of their judgment and consummation, until the everlasting judgment is consummated. They will be led away to the fiery abyss and to torture and to the prison they will be confined for. So it was at verse 12 here. Bind them for seventy generations in the valley of the earth until a day of their judgment and consummation. Hmm. This account in 1 Enoch aligns contextually and chronologically with the spirits in prison referenced in 2 Peter and Jude. Here, the rebelling watcher spirits are thrown into the prison of the abyss until the day of judgment. The data points indicate that the apostles were familiar with the material found in 1 Enoch. They seem to have validated its content by including it by reference in New Testament writings. Right? We see this in verse in 2 Peter. The New Testament authors were aware of failed rebellion by leader Shemihizah, and his minions. These spirits are currently in prison in the abyss awaiting the great day of the Lord. Keep in mind, this may also be the prisoners that Peter is acknowledging in 1 Peter 3.19. Whoa. Okay, familiar with that one? We're going to cover it. We're going to cover it. So let's read that. So for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal for God, for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone to heaven and is the right hand of the God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. 1 Peter 3.18-22 Now, what do we know here? Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, 
is resurrected, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Did Jesus ever refer to paradise as prison? Did he ever refer to the righteous in Abraham's bosom as prisoners? No. They were waiting. They were waiting for the flight. They are waiting for the flight to spiritual Hawaii, right? Or some spiritual paradise. They weren't prisoners. Okay, I'm the light bulb going here. And here we go again. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through. Okay, because they formerly did not obey, that was their sin, right? What they had relations with daughters of men. That's him right there. We're brought safely through water. This is Noah and the ark. Cool stuff here. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven at his right hand with God, with angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him, both good and evil. So what you see here is the part about baptism. The ark passes through the waters, baptism, as an appeal for God for a good conscience. That's spiritual warfare. It's an act of spiritual warfare, the baptism. Incredible stuff here. So let's keep going. Many scholars believe that Jesus preached the divine spirits and chains in verse 19. We usually receive the message from the pulpit that the prisoners are righteous souls awaiting Jesus to take them to heaven. To some extent, this is true. However, the righteous were not in prison. They were in paradise. The argument here weighs more towards the prisoners, the divine spirits who rebelled. An excellent book on this subject is The Battle for the Keys. I actually have that book right here, if I can hold it up to my camera here. Excellent book to get a hold of this. Battle for the Keys, right? There we go. It's always backwards. Battle for the Keys. The title is Battle for the Keys, Revelation 118, and Christ's Descent into the Underworld by Justin W. Bass. In his book, Bass provides a theological assumption that 1 Peter 3.19 is a reflection of 1 Enoch. If our interpretation is correct that the spirits are disobedient angels, then the proclamation of Christ could not be an offer of redemption or salvation to them. Right? They're unredeemable. But must be one of condemnation and triumph. In addition, if in First Enoch is the appropriate background to seek the content of this preaching, then a proclamation of condemnation and victory by Christ over the disobedient angels, authorities, and powers will be the most common sense. That's what we read up there in 1 Peter 3.22. All the authorities' powers were subjected to him. Bass also refines his conclusion that 1 Peter 3.19 must be about Jesus proclaiming his victory to the watchers in prison. Who are the watchers? They are the angels that sinned. They desired and took for themselves women. Remember, that was the second fall. The first fall was in the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve took for themselves the knowledge of the Elohims. And so now we have the Elohims rebelling and taking for themselves um, daughters of men for unnatural sexual desires. And natural meaning the angels are not supposed to have intercourse or be sexual with human beings, spiritual beings, in flesh. Bass also refines his conclusion that 1 Peter 3.19 must be about Jesus proclaiming his victory to the watchers in prison. He writes, In sum, if our exegesis of this passage is correct, 
then Peter is saying that between Christ being put to death in the flesh and resurrected to a spiritual existence, he went to the underworld to declare victory over the disobedient angels confined in Tartarus. Peter then refines Noah, excuse me, Peter then references Noah because he builds ark after this event. That's in Genesis 6 also. And like Noah and his family, Peter's audience were baptized and both were a very small number compared to the pagan world around them. Peter is given the account of Jesus' cosmic victory over the powers of darkness. The chaos that resulted from the rebellion of the watchers in Genesis 6 was conquered at the cross. That's what we're looking at there. Amazing stuff. So when Jesus went down to preach to the prisoners, he, who are the prisoners? The prisoners were the watchers. That's what the second temple Hebrew belief was. So if you lived 2,000 years ago and you went to the synagogue and you read your, your scrolls, your scriptures, and you're familiar with some of the stuff they're finding in Dead Sea Scrolls now, First Enoch, there's other books that they read too that were non-canonical that were part of this information, but that was one of them. First Enoch was one of them. So when Peter, Apostle Peter, is referencing God preaching to the prisoners, he's preaching a proclamation that what you guys did in Genesis 6 has been overturned and you guys will be judged the day of the Lord. What's interesting here too is, remember um, the Gerasene demoniacs? Um, when they saw Jesus approach and they they bowed down, they go, what are you doing here? It's not our time yet. They're also referring to the day of the Lord. That's what's going on here. We're connecting dots here from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Old Testament demonology, um, I think, should outflank anything New Testament or that we have with today in books. A lot of the books are wrong. I keep telling you guys that. And it's not because the um, you know, the the overall theology we got western well, we got westernized, that's what did. Westernized just totally butchered it. So let's see here. So let's I want to cover one more thing here too. The Ark passed the waters baptism. That's one thing I had in my book too. So this is part of what happened when um Peter's quoting. So Genesis 6, 1 through 4 covers a brief introduction of Nephilim. The Nephilim are the fallen ones. There is some discrepancy regarding the name Nephilim as to whether the fallen ones refer to the title of mighty heroes or fallen angels. It could be both, okay? I don't want to get that, that uh, context now. I'm going to have to do a podcast on this one refine some of my old podcasts on research I've done since then. But the Nephilim also refer to um, probably unclean spirits that came from them. And Nephilim also refers to these mutant kings, right? Their bloods were tainted. Nimrod was one. Lamech, it was possible it was even Noah's was tainted too, but he was righteous. Does that make sense? Because Lamech was a um, he was a barbaric murderer and he built cities. And that's part of what the Nephilim was. They were uh, mighty heroes. You know, so it's we don't know the whole story there, but it's it's kind of a loose term. But all in all, I'm pretty comfortable with the fact that the Nephilim were mutant kings. It's quite possible, he said, that Noah's bloodline was tainted too. That's how they probably existed afterwards. I don't know. I don't know. A lot of research there and a lot of stuff we don't know, but this that's, that's the nebulous part. Hopefully something surfaces in a couple of broken uh, Dead Sea Scrolls jars or something. So here we go. The word Nephilim is only mentioned in Genesis 6-4 and Numbers 13-33. But now, thanks to Enoch filling in the blanks, we have a proper backstory of what guy, why God's angry, why the earth is defiled, and why God decides to hit the creation reset button, right? The flood was a de-creation. 
that's that word that Dr. Tim Mackey uses quite a bit, decreation. And I've quoted in my podcast too, or if you're following us on Exodus, a decreation happened with the plagues in Exodus. So when God gets angry or does something, you know, judgment, he does a decreation. In Genesis 6.3, God could no longer allow his spirit, the rock, to reside inside man or flesh. He proclaimed that in 120 years, he would bring judgment, presumably by the deluge. Throughout the Old Testament, we'll see the theme that the God's people are delivered from evil by passing through water, a baptism. Noah and his family were passed through waters of the great flood. They were baptized. Cool stuff there, huh? Moses and the Israelites passed through the waters of God at the Sea of Reeds. Joshua passed through the waters behind the Ark of the Covenant. And 1 Peter 3, 20-21 reveals, verse 20, Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought through safely the water. Verse 21, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's 1 Peter 3, 20-21. So we have a water baptism going on, a spiritual warfare too. So we're tying stuff back and forth. If you have to think about it, remember, John the Baptist was baptizing before it was something in the gospel. We always think, oh, they're baptizing towards Jesus. Baptizing was a sign of spiritual warfare and um, for the forgiveness of sins. And I think these guys knew full well back into the Second Temple you know, theology that it tied back to Noah's Ark. And it was clearly understood, and that's what the Apostle Peter's pointing out here too, that we've lost that connection. Let's go back to dealing with Jesus and what's going on down there. I want to jump over to the Second Temple Angelology in my book. Okay, I want to jump over to uh, page 107 of my book uh, under the Early Church Demonology and Angelology. And I want to start bringing up the Elohims. We had several things going on while Jesus was down in Sheol, the realm of death. So he dealt with the Watchers, but there's something else he had to deal with too. And that was the wicked regional spirits that came back from Genesis 11 who were in control there, right? So let me do this here. So, see, there's a lot of stuff that happened that we don't really mention in church. Like, we just we jump over, like, um, uh, we jump to Resurrection Sunday, which is good. That's the most powerful thing that happened. But we don't understand what happened in the heavenly realms, what happened in the spirit realms. And here's something I want to point out here, too. Well, what Jesus took care of, right? He took care of a lot of business, right? He had to clean up and take the keys away from Satan. He took the keys away from him from Hades. Um, Jesus went down and he proclaimed to the, um, the, the the prisoners in the abyss, that's where the watchers. Now something else here. Now what's he going to do about the wicked um, regional spirits, like the one we were talking about in Exodus, the ones that want to be um, worshipped, and they're having people worship them and defile um, all sorts of stuff that Paul's speaking about. Don't eat defiled food to other gods. And the gods that were in Ephesus, who were these guys? They were regional spirits that came from um, Genesis 11. So let's dive into here. So we're going to refer back to the sons of God, the Ben Elohims, right? That's the other thing Jesus had to take care of when he descended. Where do we find the Elohim in the New Testament? Paul identifies the wicked Elohim in the epistles to the Ephesians, Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. In the New Testament, we see Jesus seized victory over the wicked Elohim at the cross in Colossians 2. Colossians 2, 14-15 read, 
by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them. Who are the rulers and authorities? The ones in Ephesians 6.12. He, he put them to shame, the, the wicked um, ruling regional spirits. Jesus disarmed the wicked Elohim and put them to shame. Deliverance books tend to reference this as low-level demons being put to shame. These are not demons being referenced here. Paul uses the terms rulers and authorities. These are wicked, divine council members, sons of God, ben Elohim. They have been defeated, but they are still free to roam like Satan until the day of the Lord. Here's one way to think about this. If you're a World War II buff, remember those two significant victories in World War II. The first one was D-Day, right? Normandy, the beaches of Normandy. We stormed the beaches of Normandy and we crushed the head of the Nazis and the Axis. But the war wasn't over yet. Um, that's kind of where we're at right now, right? We crushed the enemy and they lost at Normandy and there was a lot of collateral damage. They were blowing all sorts of stuff up. That's where the Ben Elohims are right now. And Satan. Now, what ended World War II was Victory Day, VE Day, the final final confrontation was a Victory Day. That is the day of the Lord. So we're in this gap of ending this war, and there's a lot of collateral damage on, and that's why these guys are Roman free and doing all this garbage. So they have been defeated, but they're still free to roam like Satan until the day of the Lord. Now we established the vocabulary of rulers and authorities in the Old Testament divine council members. We are to believe that are both good and bad Elohim serving God, right? There's both good and bad. We've seen this. I think Corinthians, I can't remember which chapter it was, called out good. Good authorities and rulers working with, with Jesus. Jesus Christ is the top of the hierarchy, no matter what. Jesus Christ is at the top. He's not an angel. He's God, right? He created all these other spiritual beings, all these council members, Satan, all of them are beneath him. And they're nowhere near him. It's not yin and yang. They all can't gang up and bring him down. Because, like I keep saying, if you're a Marvel fan, Jesus can Thanos snap these guys out of existence, and he's going to do it when he throws them in a lake of fire in Revelation 20. So Jesus Christ, atop the hierarchy, he is their creator, and he can decreate them as he's shown before. So we know by Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him for him. This New Testament mapping back into Old Testament of Genesis 1-11, through God prophesied in Genesis 3.15 the coming of the Messiah, the Lord God Jesus Christ. Jesus comes, he is the creator incarnate, and resolves all the issues from the first Adam, the watchers, and the returning of the 70 nations. Right? That was the third fall. All of man rebelled against God at the Tower of Babel. So Jesus took his portion, the Hebrews, and it was the tribe of Eber or something, the son of Eber, something like that became the Hebrews. I can't remember which it was, but um, it's back there in, in that, uh, let's see, blah, 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 uh, probably in Genesis 10, Genesis 9 or 10, look for the Eber. That became the Hebrews, um, which later became Abraham. And the Gentiles were all the rest, and they were thrown under some good rulers and some wicked rulers. I think we probably had some good rulers on the United States, but now we're under wicked rulers now. I don't know what happened there. So let's keep going. So when will the 70 nations be restored, the fullness of the Gentiles? We don't know. It's yet to come. I think it's after Christ returns that we get restored. 
we may see humanity take seats in a divine council when this happens, right? So that's we're not judging angels yet. We're not. When we take seats in divine council, we're already in heaven. That's when we're judging angels. Not while we're down here. While we're down here, we're spiritual beings in flesh who are created lesser than angels. So that's Hebrews 2.7. We are created lesser than angels. And for this reason, it's irresponsible for an intercessor to believe they can engage in warfare with any member of the beings called out in Ephesians 6.12 hierarchy. You will get a massive smackdown if you try this. So let's look at spirits chained in the abyss. What do we do theologically about the spirits, angels, in chains and abyss? If we say Genesis 6, 1-4 never happened or is merely biblical mythology, we create a paradox with Peter and Jude's narrative of angels leaving their domain. So the Baptist Seminary and the Dallas Theological Seminary cannot um, sidetrack this or whitewash it. Nowhere in the Bible is there a reference to spirits in prison. We don't have it, except for what Peter told us, and so did Jude. Satan is still roaming free, right? He's not captured. And he's responsible for a significant cosmic event that required Jesus Christ to come to earth incarnate. He did something so drastic, Jesus had to come fix it. But Satan's not in prison yet. There is no other cosmic event recorded of considerable importance that would require the imprisonment of angels. Messing with God's creation, using sexual immorality, and using the act to procreate a hybrid eternal being is an immediate prison sentence with no chance of parole. Verse Enoch also established these Elohim, the watchers, are those in the abyss. If you think about the sexual immorality, right? We go to the angels committed sexual immorality against man. Now, what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah? The angels come, and the, the evil men in Sodom and Gomorrah want to have sexual immorality with the angels, like a backflip, right? It happens on, on both sides, these weird things going on here. But if you're a Septuagint reader and you're, you're fluent in the Septuagint, the Old Testament, the Torah, you would have saw this back and forth. Oh, that's what that is. That connects back to Genesis 6. You know, these, these things going on here. In the New Testament, the imprisoned watchers are mentioned several times in 1 Peter 3.19, 2 Peter 2.4, and Jude 5-7, and Revelation 9. However, in the modern church, we don't make these correlations because we are not as well versed in the Old Testament as the Second Temple Hebrews were. The Septuagint was their Bible, so when the early church read the Gospels or the Epistles and saw references to angels imprisoned, they immediately associated the incident to Genesis 6, 1 through 4 and the sin of the watchers. I think we just got it puzzled now. I did. Like, what the heck are they talking about here? This is nuts. You know, all these angels came down. They sinned against women. And then there's the Nephilim. They were the mighty men of old. And they were on the earth before and after the flood. And like, what is it? You know, because we aren't making that connection. But if you're the old Second Temple Hebrews, and you're reading this, and it was a day of the scroll reading um, Genesis 6, you're going, oh yeah, those guys. Yep, I know who they are. Those are guys in the first Enoch. So when John is writing about spirits being released from prison in Revelation 9, remember this is Revelation 9. This comes before Revelation 20, where Satan's not even thrown into the pit yet. Who are locked up? So here we go. He is most likely referencing the watchers. Revelation 9, verses 7 through 11. In appearance, the locusts were like horses appeared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human, right? What's that about divine council members? That their hair like woman's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates, like breastplates of lions, like breastplates of iron, 
and the noise of their wings was like those of many chariots and horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and his Greek name is Apollyon. The Watchers will be released from prison in Revelation 9, but they will rise in the bottomless pit to bring judgment on those who don't have the seal of God in their foreheads. They will bring horrible torment to those who aren't redeemed. John tells us that they will wish for death, but they won't die. So something about whatever's their stingers is some sort of plague or poison. That's horrible. It lasts for five months. So I'm tying this all together. So what happened when Jesus went down to paradise? One, he pulled back the red, you know, the red rope <laughs> and let the let his um righteous in the, in the heaven. Like the father's prepared a place for you. So he went up there. Meanwhile, he went down to check on the holdings and the and the demonic or uh, you know forbidden angelic zoo there and went and preached to those those uh the watchers. Oh, so hey, how's it going so far? And it's not not going too well in here, huh? You know, it goes, by the way, I just undid everything you guys did. Um I just let the Abraham and the first tour up into uh, heaven there, which you guys are not going to. So, you know, it's just, that's what he, he released into. That's why he took the keys back. He took the keys back from there. And Satan, what was Satan doing under? We don't know. There's a lot more to this story. And he also, when either he was there or when he ascended into heaven, I don't think the um, the wicked principalities and rulers are in heaven. They're most like in second heaven. Or they have a, um, some domain set up in Shoal. Who knows? Back in, in hell. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. But he humiliated them, right? That was the our D-Day in battle where God drug them around in chains and humiliated them. The, the, the authorities and the rulers, that was the wicked, um, like the prince of Persia. You know he was in on that, right? From Daniel. You know he was in chains being dragged around in shame. So, so we have wicked regional spirits and that's who he went after. So I hope this provides some information on what happens. I think a lot of people get hung up with um, he was Jesus was gone for three days. I think Jesus cites that he'll be gone for three days and three nights like Jonah was. But I think it was more reference to Jesus dying and going resurrection, coming back to life like Jonah did. Or it's just, you know, like, it's not, you know, he's being cynical. Well, it wasn't three business days. It was over a weekend. So it was three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But it wasn't three nights, you know. They came back on Sunday. The tomb was open. But... I'm not so much hung up on that because I think there's an idiom or ideology there we don't understand of why it was three days and three nights. And some people have. Some atheists have done it. I've known a person that actually walked away from their, their faith because it wasn't three days, you know, but their faith wasn't strong to begin with. That's what it was. They went through seminary and everything. It was horrible. Somebody I worked with in spiritual warfare, they saw some crazy stuff I saw. I was dumbfounded when they said that. It's like, well, that's what you're hung up on? Aren't you more hung up on the fact that Jesus died and <laughs> came back to life and the tomb was empty? That's why I like using them for this particular um, thumbnail. I use using the, the Holy Shroud of Turin because they said that thing's real. Like a hundred thousands of volts went through that thing to make the Holy Shroud of Turin. Where do you get that sort of energy? Well, it was made by Da Vinci. Yeah, Da Vinci didn't make this. And now they're finding the, the blood droplets and the stains are about 2,000 years old and the dirt and the blood, DNA and stuff all come back from the region where this, in Jerusalem, where it's possibly real. And I think just by the physics alone to make that X-ray 2,000 years ago, that one has to be Jesus. It has to be. So anyhow, I hope this guy edifies you and where Jesus went. Because we always blow over Saturday and all this crazy stuff happened, right? It's like, well, he was down in, um, you know, kicking it and kicking things up, right? And messing things up down there with the, the gangbangers and, and, and Shoal. You guys lost. You lost. You lost. 
say it again. Who won? Say it loud. You know, I can't hear you. Who won? Jesus won. Right? So I think he was giving them some trash. He was talking trash to them because they tried to go against him. You know, he's a loving Jesus. He would have gave them anything, but they went and did this. You know, they have free will like we do and capable of doing stupid stuff. But, you know, you have somebody that totally loves you and is going to help you. Why? Why would you do this? Why? Anyhow, I digress. But that's what happened when Jesus descended before he ascended. And when after he ascends, you know, we not that's he, he came back up and, and left the tomb. Incredible stuff. I really love this Resurrection Sunday stuff. I love it. I love what Jesus did. It's amazing. And it's it's getting to be more and more unarguable. Uh, with biblical archaeology and everything else. It's just, it's, it's starting to reveal itself more and more. Anyhow, that's all I have for you guys. You guys have been amazing. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope I didn't ramble and I hope it wasn't too much information. But that was all for my my book, Cosmology and Demonology in Genesis 1 through 11. So go get that book, man. I read it for a purpose because there's so much stuff out there I didn't know. Um, there was just stuff like whenever, you know, I've, I've done exorcisms. I've done with the occult. I've done with high-level high um, spiritual beings in the occult, cosmic beings, all that stuff. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Go look it up. <laughs> It was like, what the heck is Paul quoting in the epistles of Ephesians 6.12? It wasn't found anywhere. And so you do your research, now it all connects the dots back to the Old Testament, all back to Genesis 6 and Genesis 11, man. That's where all this stuff come from. So, And Jesus went and corrected that, right? Jesus had to correct the fall where angels desired daughters of men. So that's it for you guys. Um, God bless you. And this is Mike from M16 Ministries. Check me out. Amen. <laughs>